this yes. is hell. Okay. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And that is not why I feel weird. It's not from drinking last night. I think I'm coming down with something because I woke up this morning in a horrible, horrible sweat. Today, our guest will reveal how capitalism is robbing nature, ripping it off, jumping it in an alley, cold cocking the environment, and taking everything, leaving nature battered, bruised, and struggling to survive. And as we are part of that nature here on planet Earth, that means capitalism is an existential threat to all of us. We'll tell you who our guest is and a bit more about them and what they'll be sharing with us in a moment. We've also got more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a book we are featuring on tomorrow's show, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. And I might be falling for some media hype, and it's kind of making me sick to my stomach. I'll tell you about that in a moment. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show. Show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex? I think the power imbalance between me and Mel is uh, shifting. He's back in charge. He, uh, I got, I got walked into the back porch at Carrie's, and he's already downstairs yelling at me to give him some food. Uh, <laughs> then he waited for me to start to come up the stairs, and then ran in front of me, ran up the stairs back on the top screaming at me <laughs> i'm not enjoying this anymore no pete is having real issues with him too especially the back door game where he wants to come in but you have to walk away from the back door and leave it open for him to come in yeah pete's had it with him too uh you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio and you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to either myself or alex at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com alex did we get any more answers to this week's question from hell since yesterday's show oh yeah i'm gonna do that twitter runs today uh so the question from hell is what nice thing are you saying about michael bloomberg after you cash that check what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check via Twitter? Dr. Carroll says, the pen looked so small in his manly hands. <laughs> uh, Garrett L says, Mike's a guy you can really look up to. He's ready to take our democracy to new heights and he'll stand tall for the little guy and won't give American workers the short end of the stick. <laughs> uh, Corner Store D says, Mike was the only passenger to always check ID on the Lolita Express. That's the kind of leadership we need now. Uh, Joan C says, I never drank soda anyway, but will now drink the Kool-Aid sugar-free. Elliot P or Elliot S past guest Elliot Sperber said he's actually not that short what is <laughs> what is a nice thing that you're saying about Mike Bloomberg after you cash that check uh Exile Royale says he is the man that made New York City what it is today Chris D says closet Idris Muhammad fan <laughs> uh, everyday socialism says it really uh it's really more stopping frisky uh AV says we'll be using that cash to launch a cat food startup called stopping friskies Tara D said, oh, God, Tara D, you're killing me here. She wrote, Daddy loves good little girls. And yes, I can physically feel slime coating me and suffocating my humanity as a direct result of writing that out. I'm going to have to read that, Tara. <laughs> uh, a couple more. Soy Boy of the Deep says, I hope this check keeps me from paying Bernie's new taxes. <laughs> very good. And uh, Mark says, Stop and Frisk revolutionized my pickup artist game. Can't thank Blueberg enough. Sent via Securus Prison Talk. <laughs> Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email Alex or I 
at Alex at this is hell.com or Chuck at this is hell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a book we are featuring on tomorrow's show, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. And today's guest is sociologist John Bellamy Foster, co-author of The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism and the Ecological Rift, which John co-wrote with Brett Clark. John is editor of Monthly Review. You can find the Monthly Review online at monthlyreview.org. He's also professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. He's written widely on political economy and has established a reputation as a major environmental sociologist. John is author of several other books, including the 2014 title, The Theory of Monopoly Capitalism, and Elaboration of Marxian political economy. And you can find out more about John at his website, johnbellamyfoster.org. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And apparently the abyss this week for me is the media. There's so much that's annoying me about the media right now. I don't know where to start. At least I didn't know where to start until last night when I saw local news coverage here in Chicago of Rob Blagojevich's sentence being commuted by President Trump. Yes, it was so Trump to pardon someone, then mince, mispronounce, mince, <laughs> then mispronounce the p- pardoned person's name, then say James Comey was behind Blagojevich's guilty verdict and sentencing when Comey was not involved in any way with the former governor's conviction. And then refer to the prosecutor in the case as Fitzpatrick when the prosecutor's name was Patrick Fitzgerald. And it was hilarious that Trump got totally played, completely punked by Rod's wife, Patty, the daughter of a Chicago Democratic machine boss who repeatedly went on Fox News Channel so she could talk directly to Trump. In 2018, Patty said on Fox, they're trying to undo elections and play politics instead of doing what they're supposed to do. It takes a strong leader like President Trump to right these wrongs. Patty went on Fox repeatedly, claiming that Comey and special counsel Robert Mueller were not only behind the Russian election interference probe, but also her husband's investigation, arrest, and conviction, saying on Fox also in 2018, I see that these same people that did this to my family, who secretly taped us, twisted the facts, perverted the law, and put my husband in jail, those people are trying to do it on a larger scale to Trump. And Trump fell for it even though none of it was true. As the Chicago Tribune reported yesterday, Mueller was head of the FBI during the Bogoyevich probe, but then U.S. Attorney General Michael Mukasey made the decision to tap the governor's phones. Comey was U.S. Deputy Attorney General when the investigation into Bogoyevich's administration began, but he moved to the private sector in 2005 and played no role in Bogoyevich's indictment. That's right. Trump fell for Patty Blagojevich's fake news on Fox. So, last night when Rob Blagojevich finally lands at O'Hare Airport, Channel 9 WGN News here in Chicago, sends a reporter, Julie Unruh, out to interview him as he gets his luggage at the carousel. And not one question about his wife using fake news to get him out of prison. What did Unruh ask? I'm not kidding you, the reporter asked if Blagojevich would keep his now gray hair gray, telling him, I think it looks good. You should go with it. When Blagojevich is asked what he learned from his ordeal, he responds that the justice system is corrupt. With absolutely no follow-up question, Unruh asks, so what's next for you? Blagojevich laughs because it's a stupid question. 
the guy just got off, out of prison and off of a plane taking him home. Do you think that in that short time, he has somehow come up with plans for his future? He even tells this reporter repeatedly that he'll let them know at some point in the near future, but that doesn't stop Unruh from repeating the same question over and over and over again and never getting back to his point about the corrupt justice system. More than anything, the reporter seemed enamored with fame. His fame, her fame, they were just both enamored with fame. They smiled at each other and exchanged pleasantries as if they had attended many of the same black tie functions together. Their cordial chat between celebrities revealed the ugly incestuousness of those who want to attain fame in the media and fame and power in politics, which could be a real problem when doing journalism. And to be honest, I cannot trust anything the reporter Julianne Roos says when it comes to covering politics, as she seems to be far too cozy with politicians. It's as if she was protecting her access to Blagojevich. I don't know why you'd need that anymore. More than she was trying to get any new important information from him. And it wasn't the first time I saw that kind of clear conflict of interest on display in the media. The Houston Astros are in the middle of this huge scandal in baseball for using high-tech cameras and a variety of methods to steal signals from the opposing catcher that are meant for the opposing pitcher. The Astros would steal the sign, communicate to the batter what the next pitch would be, vastly increasing the batter's chance of getting a hit and scoring. Everybody in baseball is pissed because the Astros have been a dominant team the last few years, going to the World Series twice. The one year they did not go to the series is because they lost to Boston in the playoffs, who had hired a person away from Houston who could teach them how to steal, steal signs, too. The teams have been penalized, but not the players. This has led to a lot of anger amongst the players and fans who feel they have been cheated for the last few years. That's when I saw Chicago sportscaster David Kaplan explain how he was going to show his anger toward the Astros. Kaplan explained that when the Astros come to town to play the Chicago White Sox, Kaplan said he's getting tickets for every game so he can hurl insults at the Astros. He even suggested that the Astros will sell out most of their road games because of the pent-up anger. He even kept talking about how you better get those tickets now, they're going to go fast. Do not fall for this media hype by someone whose work depends upon more tickets being sold to sporting events. You want to show your anger at baseball? Do not go to any game where the Houston Astros or Boston Red Sox are playing. Boycott games to show your anger at baseball. Do not give them money. That sends a message to baseball. The message you're sending by attending Astros games and yelling at players is, you've ruined the game, now take more of my money. The media hype did not stop there this week. It went into full throttle full tilt yesterday when the Democratic Party announced the last step in finally achieving the Clinton wing dream, the old mid-1980s to early aughts Democratic Leadership Council fantasy of becoming the Republican Party. The DLC were the ones behind slashing welfare, increasing mass incarceration, embracing free trade ideas like NAFTA, overturning Glass-Steagall, which played a huge role in the 2008 financial collapse. They're the Democrats who voted for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. During some of our earliest shows way back in 1996 from Jump, we were complaining about the DLC here on This Is Hell, and now their dreams are coming true. First, those neoliberals now control the Democratic National Committee. Second, Bernie Sanders' politics, which reflect a more traditional set of Democratic Party beliefs prior to neoliberalism, frighten the hell out of the DLC, which is now the DNC. Third, they're so scared that they're bending their own rules to allow Michael Bloomberg to be on the stage in tonight's debate. The transition is complete. The Democratic leadership has allowed a Republican into the 
debate to stop the threat of the Democratic Party going back to their old pro-labor, pro-working class, pro-universal coverage instead of means-testing ways. Now, I've not watched one second of any of the debates because I know I knew that listening to Beto and Julian Castro and Kamala Harris and all the other people who dropped out of the debate, I knew that that was going to be a waste of my time and their oxygen. But with Bloomberg in and knowing he is a horrible speaker and even worse at debates, I was thinking I just might tune into tonight's circus at least long enough to watch Bloomberg fall flat on his face, and that should not take long. The media hype around Bloomberg, like they're constantly telling us Joe Biden would be the next president, while I was saying he would not win one primary, and I was seriously doubting if he would get any delegate at all in the primaries. It's just more hype. Michael Bloomberg is most likely the next Herman Cain, the next media flavor of the month, which the media insists is actually going to be on the political menu for four to eight years. The Democrats, the media now have their liberal oligarch to promote, taking another step toward the DLC, now the DNC strategy of, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. And this constantly, this constant movement of the Democratic Party has given the far right cover for their hideous policies, letting Republicans move toward extremist reactionary positions while the DNC is finally becoming what the Clintons and Gores wanted all along. Congratulations, Democratic Party. You've finally become the GOP. I don't want to fall for the media hype. I don't want to watch the debate tonight. And I certainly do not want to watch simply to experience schadenfreude, the pleasure you get from watching others' misery. Because the person who likely will be in the most misery will be me watching the debate, wondering, how did I fall for this media hype again and being reminded this is hell coming up on This Is Hell, how capitalism undermines our relationship with nature leading to environmental destruction. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. There have been concerns about capitalism's impact on the environment for a very, very long time, dating back to the first half of the 19th century, after less than a century of capitalism. Here to explain how capital ruined our relationship with nature, sociologist John Bellamy Foster is co-author with Brett Clark of The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism and the Ecological Rift. Welcome to This Is Hell, John. Glad to be here. Oh, it sounds great. No static. That's fantastic. John is editor of Monthly Review, and you can find the Monthly Review online at monthlyreview.org. You can find out more about John at his website, johnbellamyfoster.org. Citing Marx, you explain Karl Marx's famous theory of metabolic rift. In his perspective, in this perspective, the labor process constitutes the vital social metabolism, mediating the relationship between humanity and the universal metabolism of nature, that is, natural processes as a whole. Capitalist commodity production, however, introduces an alienated mediation of this essential ecological relationship through its one-dimensional pursuit of the value form, exchange value, at the expense of the natural form, use value. The result is the metabolic rift. This requires a revolutionary reconstitution of society as a whole in order to store a viable socio-ecological metabolism, one that will sustain the elemental conditions of life for the chain of human generations. Is the goal of capital to disconnect humanity from nature? Must capital disconnect us from nature to succeed? Well, yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes. Uh, the, um, the system is in many ways based on the exploitation of labor, 
but that um, requires um, the expropriation of the earth at uh, the same time. Uh, the the power of capital um, partly comes from the uh, control of um, of nature uh, from the uh, robbery of nature, and. Um, the uh, the way the system works is that uh, production or the labor process production for Marx um, was really the metabolism between human beings and nature as we transform uh, the earth through production and um, with all our social relations um, that are connected to that uh, we're we're altering our relations to nature. And capitalism does this in a particularly alienated way, both the alienation of labor and and uh, the alienation of, of nature, of the earth, um, are, are connected. And I think that's what makes Marx's ecological analysis so important, because the economic critique of capital and the ecological critique of capital are in his analysis two sides of the same coin we've generally looked only at one side of that coin now we're being forced to look at the other we're being forced to look at the other are we being forced to overcome that compartmentalization due to climate change Yes, and not just climate change you know we have to remember I mean climate change of course is our our most immediate uh, problem on a global level, but we have to understand as the science um, explains earth system science um, now focuses on the the um, uh, creation of uh, or the maintenance of a of safe place for humanity and uh, in that context they've described various planetary boundaries that we are crossing uh, all of which or are close to crossing all of which represent uh, planetary ecological crises um, for example um, this uh, species extinction or loss of uh, biodiversity in general we're in the sixth extinction and um, we're destroying life at um, about a thousand times the normal or background rate uh, extinguishing species and there's there's um, uh, ocean acidification there's the destruction of the phosphorus and nitrogen cycles which are destroying the oceans there's uh, loss of, uh, of fresh water there's loss of land cover forests and um, and and so on and uh, each of these these uh, crossing each of these planetary boundaries is in itself um, a global ecological crisis. Each one of them could uh, could uh, have irreparable and irreversible consequences for life and humanity. And we're doing them. We're, we're doing all of this at the same time. And climate change is just one of these boundaries. And the common denominator of all of this is, of course, um, our economic system, which is putting the pressure on the earth. 
Well, so what happens then when environmentalists, when those who are fighting or trying to challenge climate change, climate change activists, what happens when they only look at the environmental aspect and not the economic aspect? Do, you, do they completely miss the point in how they can stop climate change? Because I constantly talk to people who are uh, obviously against climate change, who are environmentalists, and very rarely do I hear them bring up the economics. So what happens when we only look at the environmental and not the economic? Well, we we end up being ineffective and uh, uh, r- incredibly wishful thinking. And when you, um, uh, you think about it, there are really two kinds of uh, denialism. One of them, one form of denialism is is what we normally encounter when, um, you know, those like Trump and the oil companies and so on deny that climate change exists. And, of course, that's a, a problem. But a bigger problem for us than that kind of denialism, which really doesn't have that many in adherents uh, anymore, is um, is um, a, kind, a second kind of denialism. Maybe you could call it uh, denialism of the... Uh, the relation of the problem to capitalism, to the economy. And uh, in that kind of denialism, they think, oh, well, there is a climate change problem, and uh, we'll just solve it by uh, some marketplace solutions or some technological uh, solutions that the system will automatically cough up. And we can just go along uh, with our normal business and that kind of denialism you find more among liberals and democrats and uh and that's just as fatal maybe it's it's in some ways worse because it's a case of those who admit there is a problem but thinks the problem doesn't really require any fundamental change as a uh, and that's one of the reasons why you know we've known about um, the serious of nice climate change since the 1960s, certainly since the, the uh, 1980s, uh, and uh, and yet um, we've only made the situation worse because uh, the there is a lack of understanding or willingness to understand the relationship between the uh, climate change problem, the Earth system crisis, and capitalism. There's another kind of denialism that I was thinking about, because you write right at the beginning of your book, you write about how what we need is a very long-term ecological change. How much uh, denialism are we in right now that this is going to take a very, very, very long time to overcome the problems that have been caused by capitalism's impact on our planet through climate change? Well, yeah, there's denialism of that. I talk in the book or Brett and I, Brett Clark and I talk in the book about uh, the long ecological revolution, which is the final chapter. But um, we tend to uh, look at this in terms of uh, two stages, because obviously we're in a very serious time crunch right now, because uh, the... um, there's only about 14 years at the present rate of emissions be, uh, before we uh, hit uh, two degree um, two degrees Celsius increase in in global average temperature, which um, 
the science, the scientific consensus says, uh, is the uh, point of um, no return, uh, uh, the point of irreversibility. Essentially, um, if we get to uh, two degrees Celsius um, increase in global average temperature, we um, the the whole um, climate is likely to spin out of control because of the uh, various feedback mechanisms, and we won't be able to uh, reverse things or stop things, or or um, uh, we won't be able to um, prevent the climate from going up to three degrees or four degrees. Uh, that's the that's the the great worry, and uh, it's coming from the scientific community. So if we look at it that way, at our current rate of emissions, uh, we only have, you know, um, a very little time, uh, decade, decade and a half, and emissions have to peak now, according to all the projections, and then have to uh, decrease globally by over 3% a year, which means in the rich countries it would have to decrease, um, practically speaking, um, by double digit uh, per year. So obviously when we have this kind of situation, we can't simply talk about a long ecological revolution. We have to think in terms of of um, two stages. We have to think of a, a, a stage of revolt that's, that's motivated, that's revolutionary in, in character, but um, maybe more limited because we're starting from where we're at. And we have to keep the fossil fuel in the ground and do other necessary things, which would be, um, you know, fundamental change. Then after that, you know, if we can stabilize things so we don't uh, um, go off the cliff, uh, then we will have to make even bigger changes because our relation to the earth is fundamentally different now. It's what they call a no-analog situation in science. Um, the Anthropocene, we have to stabilize our relation to the earth, but we can't stabilize it under this system, which is based on uh, the robbery of nature, exploitation of of uh, workers, and uh, creates an anthropogenic rift with the or metabolic rift in relation to the environment. We have to um, operate by some other kind of logic, some other kind of social logic, uh, more sustainable and more egalitarian. And that logic, as you point out towards the end of your book, is the logic that we've uh, discussed on our show with Victor Wallace, who you thank at the beginning of your book, when we spoke with him about eco-socialism. Do you think that, are you seeing any signs that eco-socialism is making any headway, is gaining any ground, is growing in popularity here in the United States? Well, um, the... Um, <laughs> it, there is um, various. There are various developments in the United States that are occurring. Uh, there is um, now a creation of a global and 
uh, eco-socialism network and uh, they have a website and you can look it up uh, there is uh, system change uh, not climate change in the United States uh, it seems like everywhere people are talking about uh, eco-socialism I actually think that um, Bernie Sanders's um, Green New Deal plan is is really um, good. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishingly astonishingly good, um, considering and um, and uh, it's the only it's the only plan that there is that takes um, the issues fully into consideration. And uh, so um, and you know, it's very much. Uh, eco-socialist in nature, or eco-democratic in nature. Um, it's you know it, it could be more radical, but it starts with the frontline communities. It focuses on the need to to address the issue of labor in the context of uh, addressing uh, the climate problem, and it's on, on a scale that um, is meaningful. And none of the other plans that um, anywhere are um, are like that, at least um, within the political universe. So. So, um, yeah, there is um, an enormous growth of, um, of uh, eco-socialist ideas. It's occurring very rapidly, but, of course, not, not fast enough because um, we, um, we're speeding towards the edge of the cliff. And, uh, and um, our efforts, although they're, they're uh, multiplying, um, uh, we really need something that uh, uh, is much more explosive at this point. Uh, I think um, Extinction Rebellion in Britain is way ahead of, in some ways, in terms of action of the kinds of things that have generally been happening in the United States. And uh, some of the indigenous struggles in Canada are also things that we should learn from. So just so people know, we uh, interviewed Victor Wallace back in July 2018, and you can uh, should check out his book, Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. They can hear that interview at our website, thisishell.com. You write that you are not concerned simply with the robbing of nature, but also the robbing of the physical bases of human existence through various forms of oppression associated with class, race, gender, and imperialism. In extreme cases, this manifests itself as what Frederick Engels called social murder. Earlier this month, we spoke with sociologist Josh Syme, uh, author of Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering, on a ride-along in a high-crime and poverty-stricken neighborhood. Uh, Josh witnesses the victim of a murder, but he argues we may also have witnessed what Frederick Engels calls social murder, capitalism's inevitable wasting of human life. The market yields and necessitates exploited, excluded, and precarious populations, workers, jobless, and the temporarily employed, that are all exposed to an array of bodily risks. A common refrain I've seen on social media and I heard long before it existed, before social media existed from anti-communists, from those who oppose any sort of socialism whatsoever, is that communism killed 100 million people more than any ideology in world history. Is it even possible to determine the level of brutality of any ideology? And if so, how do the social murders committed by capitalism compare with any, the killings of any past ideologies? Well, yeah, it's it's hard to um, to uh, calculate these things, but um, 
of course, uh, what we what we could say is, let's say, since um, since the Second World War, um, uh, the United States has been uh, the number one killer of of people in the world. There's actually no question of that. That we we've, we've killed uh, more people in wars um, by far than any other other country. It's just a, a brute fact. And uh, and we're you know uh, we're very you know destructive of human life. You have to uh, look at um, what's happening internally in the United States. The the life expectancy in the United States has uh, declined for three years in a row. And um, uh, this this is quite amazing because uh, this is pretty unique to the United States, so Britain is showing similar symptoms. The an advanced, rich, advanced uh, industrial country is not going, not supposed to see a decline in life expectancy. But there's no uh, question of where, what is um, the reason for this, and uh, it's characterized um, uh, by, in economics, as um, in particular, as deaths um, deaths by despair, and uh, more and more um, people are are basically uh, killing themselves um, with um, as a result of of alcohol, um, uh, opioid, opioid uh, drugs, and uh, and suicides, and this these are just sim- symptoms of the uh, the the. Um, deeper crisis in the United States. These, these uh, deaths um, by despair have uh, risen so rapidly that they've brought down the uh, uh, U.S. life expectancy three years in a row. And uh, I think it's just the surface of, uh, of deeper problems. Of course, these deaths by despair are mostly, um, it's, it's, uh, heavy, it's centered most heavily in white men who have seen, for various reasons, um, the uh, decline in their position, which we could talk about. But it's also, um, there have also been uh, the long history of deaths by despair of similar kinds of problems affecting the black and Latino community. It's simply that uh, white men are uh, joining that demographic in some ways, and uh, this is, uh, I think, a, a really serious sign of, uh, of the fact that this, this nation is in some ways uh, coming apart, and it's part of a larger global crisis, and uh, we have to turn it around. We are speaking with sociologist John Bellamy Foster, co-author with Brett Clark of The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism and the Ecological Rift. John is editor at Monthly Review. You can find out more about Monthly Review online at monthlyreview.org. And you can find out more about John at his own website, johnbellamyfoster.org. You quote the celebrated German chemist Justus von Liebig, writing in the late 1850s and early 1860s that a farmer may sell and permanently alienate all that portion of the produce of his farm, which is 
been supplied by the atmosphere, but not the constituents of the soil. A field from which something is permanently taken away cannot possibly increase or even continue equal in productive value. He stressed that the axiom thus enunciated is simply a natural law. And, al- and a- later you explained Liebig's famous law of the minimum, moreover, indicated that there was a complex balance of soil nutrients such that to enhance the productivity of the soil in a given area, it was necessary to supply the nutrient in which the soil was most efficient to the point at which that nutrient was once again in proportion with the next most efficient soil mineral. Soil exhaustion meant that the mineral composition of the earth had been so compromised that nutrients needed to be massively imported by the hand of man from outside the farm. Liebig writes, in this sense, most of our cultivated fields are exhausted, requiring massive infusions of chemical nutrients from outside. Does capital insist on massive amounts of chemicals in the environment? Can capitalism be green? <laughs> well, yeah, um, no, <laughs> it, it can't. Um, uh, but um, it made me think of uh, how how we turn our our uh, water green <laughs> with chemicals. But uh, the um, yeah the. the Analysis of Liebig was very important. His his notion of nutrient cycle, um, cycling, and it was uh, what led to Marx's notion of the metabolic rift or the rift in in the metabolism between human beings and nature. And Liebig um, explained that um, we were basically robbing the soil of, of um, nutrients by um, sh- shipping food and fiber. Uh, hundreds and thousands of miles and then not returning uh, the nutrients to the earth and the the earth was being uh, exhausted, the soils being exhausted as a result. Um, in Liebig's time, they, they um, in in Marx and Liebig's time in the mid 19th century, they they tried to um, compensate this for Britain in Britain and the United States and so on by by shipping guano um, uh, bird droppings um, from Peru uh, to uh, England and uh, by raiding the Napoleonic battlefields and the catacombs of Europe for bones to put on English fields and uh, this was the beginning of the growth of the fertilizer industry to to try to compensate for the robbing of the soil and of course we've gone to um, different stages with that now but we we now um, pour you know nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers um, on our our soil we have all of this um, uh, runoff um, from these chemicals that are destroying our lakes, our rivers, uh, the ocean, and um, uh, in terms of phosphorus, um, their um, um, phosphorus mining is is uh, dangerous and damaging, and there's a, a very, uh, a, there's a limit on the amount of phosphorus. Anyway, these are complex systemic problems, but it's by focusing on this issue of nutrient cycling and that um, the notion of of, uh, the metabolism of nature and society came to the fore, and Marx introduced 
the notion of social metabolism. And it was out of this analysis um, that um, ecosystem uh, um, theory was, ecological theory and ecosystem theory was was to evolve. I've written another book on the whole history of this um, called The Return of Nature that's coming out in the spring. Um, and uh, But this was the beginning of ecological analysis and basically Liebig said um, you can't simply take from the earth, you have to restore, you have to replenish. I think most most people can understand that, but it's um, it's amazing how little we talk about that uh, issue in our society because we have a sort of a capitalist robbery culture. We can take infinitely from the earth without putting back and not suffer the repercussions, but now we are seeing we are suffering the repercussions and we're s- suffering them on a planetary scale. You write that Liebig was not alone from the 1850s to the 1870s in addressing the issue of the destructive relation to the soil. Other major natural scientists, agronomists, political economists raised the same questions, including George Waring, Henry Carey, James F.W. Johnston, Carl Frost, and Wilhelm George Friedrich Roscher, all of whom, except Waring, Marx studied closely. So we can include Marx in that group, too. So there's all these people discussing it in the mid-1850s, a century before we had the Green Revolution that was far more dependent on chemicals and agriculture nearly 150 years before the conglomeration of big agriculture in the late 20th century and going on until today. Was there a huge debate over what capitalism meant for the future in the 1850s? Because that would refute any claim by capitalism apologists who argue that nobody saw this coming. Nobody knew that we are innocent in the destruction of our planet by capitalism because nobody ever thought that would happen. So to what extent did we simply not know that capitalism could be so destructive that it could destroy the soil, cause famines, poison the environment with chemicals leading to cancer, especially in children's, and be a direct path to climate change? To what extent was that actually being debated? And to what extent can we just say, we just didn't see this coming? Well, um, we did see it coming, or it was being debated, um, not necessarily in the public realm, but among uh, scientists, among socialists. And uh, in our book, we have the Rift of Ire is the second chapter. It's a chapter about Ireland, and it's about um, the discussion someone on about the ecological destruction of, of Ireland and how it came about and how it was re- related to British colonialism. And, and as Mark said, um, the, the um, robbing of, of Ireland's, um, the British um, uh, robbing of Ireland's soil. And um, all of those things were going on at the time. Uh, but, of course, um, like, like today, um, the, the main media of those days didn't highlight um, the contradictions. The example I could give is uh, E. Ray Lancaster, uh, who was the, the leading scientist um, in England, the, the leading zoologist, biologist in England in the generation after Darwin and Huxley. And he was, um, he was also a friend of Karl Marx. Um, uh, Lancaster is unusual. He was, he was a protege of Charles Dor- Darwin and a friend of Karl Marx. And he's the only person we know that was uh, at both uh, Darwin's funeral and at Marx's funeral. 
and um, he was very um, influenced by Marx's ecological thinking, I believe. He was certainly a very strong critic of capitalism and a socialist himself, but he was the, also the leading British social, um, scientist of, of the day, uh, and uh, uh, at least within the uh, biological sciences. And um, he was an enormous um, critic of capitalism and its destruction of the environment. So, um, uh, and his father was actually, his father was also um, a contemporary of, of Marx and was uh, one of the, the uh, leading um, uh, individuals in fighting uh, the um, disease diseases um, engendered by by um, capitalism, the what what Engels called uh, uh, social murder. So there were people at the time, and uh, E. Ray Lancaster um, wrote scathing critiques of uh, of the uh, way we were carrying out uh, the extinction of other species and uh, and um, the um, basis in capitalism. And this went forward to other thinkers. This is a story I, I tell in The Return of Nature, which basically deals with a century after the death of, of Marx and Darwin and how uh, socialists um, played... Uh, enormous role in the construction of ecology and the most radical and innovative aspects of ecology. So we knew about um, these problems, but um, in some ways it was uh, segregated, it was separated from the movements. Um, like I said, we, the, the problem in Marx's we could see the problem in Marx's view as kind of two sides of a coin, uh, economic uh, exploitation economic crisis is one side of the coin ecological crisis robbery of the earth is the other this evolved in in marx's analysis but we we tended in our movements to look at uh, one side of the coin only and not put it together you explain how this modern robbery culture based on the total alienation of the soil was the antithesis of a rational agriculture rooted in the application of science. Last night, I mistakenly started watching a town hall with Bernie Sanders, and he started talking about climate change. And he said that one of the things that they were going to be addressing, unlike the Trump administration, is climate change through a process of science. So a lot of people are saying that, hey, Donald Trump is opposed to science. This is, you know, these Republicans are against science. What do we miss when we don't understand that it seem, seemingly capitalism is opposed to science? Yeah, I think that um, it was particularly the um, problem of the metabolic rift that led Marx to conclude that um, a rational application of science um, under capitalism was not possible. And... Um, the other um, radical scientists who played such a big role in constructing ecology uh, came to uh, similar conclusions. Of course, we have to we have to um, 
argue for the rap rational application of science. We have to uh, take uh, science seriously, but capitalism tends to corrupt science because the pursuit of profit always comes before uh, people on the planet. And, uh, and because it's an alienated system and the science, so many of the scientists, you know, who, who are caught up in the economic system and the power system too end up serving uh, those that alienated system, those alienated mediations. But nonetheless, we have to put a great deal of our hope in science, as well as in art, um, as the two main intellectual endeavors of human beings, in order to to uh, counter this. And um, so, I guess the answer is, yeah, rational application of science under capitalism uh, is is impossible but there are degrees and um, we can certainly go against the logic of capitalism in the present follow the logic of science rather than the logic of capitalism as a means of um, uh, you know stabilizing our relation to the earth and uh, preventing the social murder of of so many so much of humanity and um, and the alienation of humanity we have to um, we have to go against in the in the direction of the logic of science and the logic of art and against the logic of capitalism and even in the present day I think we can do that but the fuller revolution will come even later revolution um, occurs in stages that mount in scale as you go forward so was Marx an environmentalist who was predicting climate change? No. Um, he didn't. I mean, they didn't know about climate change at the time. It's interesting, though, while Marx was so much upon the science of his time, that when John Tyndall, um, uh, the great British physicist, um, when he was presenting his... Um, in, in lectures in London when he was presenting the results of his experiments that showed that carbon um, dioxide um, was a greenhouse gas. Um, Marx, um, we don't know if he was there um, at those lectures, but we know he was attending Tyndall's lectures at the time. And that's sort of symbolic of how much he was involved in it. He was involved in, um, in um, he, he took notes on, on the um, effects of um, climate change in, in, um, from a, a paleoclimatic standpoint, looking at how the isotherms shifted and caused species extinction. So he was right on top of, of things in his time, but it, uh, they didn't actually have a, a notion of, um, of um, global warming until the eight, 1890s, and even then it was... It, it didn't um even in um in 1938 uh uh calendar um was uh, presenting um the notion of global warming prominently to british associations or meteorological associations and and almost the whole um scientific community uh, rejected it. So it took a while before we actually knew about these things. But Marx was looking at it. He was looking at the contradictions. And the British scientist John um, 
Oh, well, the British scientist J.B.S. Holding, uh, who was a, a Marxist, um, um, pre- wrote one of the earliest pieces for Nature on um, on uh, carbon uh, dioxide increase in the atmosphere. One of the most reliable early estimates we have in um, in uh, uh, let's say in. I think it was uh, in 1936. So um, uh, radical scientists um, influenced by Marxism and dialectics were very, very much involved in this. But we didn't really uh, see global warming as a problem. It wasn't even really recognized as a serious problem until about 1962 with the the calculations of... um, Budiko in the in the Soviet Union. That was the breakthrough. You write that it is precisely because Marx offered a conception of a future society beyond capitalism directed to sustainable human development in which the associated producers would rationally regulate the metabolism between nature and society that his views can be said to have fallen short of those who can be considered ecologically conscious persons in the modern sense. The implication is that modern green thinkers, by definition, see ecological devastation as unconditional and hence wholly insurmountable and are inherently pessimistic and apocalyptic conceiving of no way forward for humanity, at least if this requires a break with the existing social order. This is no doubt an accurate description of the views of most mainstream environmentalists today who categorically refuse to consider any solution that involves going beyond capitalist relations of productions. To you, what what explains that refusal? What explains that capital denialism within the environmental movement? Well, yeah, it's it's hard to... um, it's hard to explain, but maybe, maybe um, we, we should we should. It's what we should expect. Um, first of all, um, the um, mainstream environmental movement, uh, a large part of it gets uh, funding from corporations, so they're they're very reformist organizations at best. Um, they um, and. Um, they're um, um, they're not necessarily coming from a very radical perspective or a worker-oriented perspective, or they're not geared to fundamental change. They realize that they're environmental problems, but they tend to they tend to um, to um, uh, really emphasize the degree of the problem when they're asking for uh, money from the public and they say, well, you know, and then they, um, but in terms of their actions, they act as though we have all the time in the world that capitalism will solve the problem. And we have a problem in our society where, you know, the the reality for most people, and it has to do how um, alienated we are from the earth, for the reality for most people is their material conditions seem to be determined by their economic income, by their jobs, their, um, you know, whatever form of income you have, wages or profits or so on. Um, they, we, we live by going to the stores and buying uh, products. Uh, we pay our taxes. We, we, uh, everything is uh, uh, survival is entirely about um, 
our income and we think of our reality as economic and yet underlying this is is um is uh, an ecological issue the deeper level of material existence um which maybe scientists deal with but but ordinary people um, in our society, especially urban in the urban in, uh, environment, they don't deal with uh, ecological questions. They seem distant to them, and uh, so uh, it this sort of feeds into a kind of general denialism, a failure to look at the roots of things. Being radical means uh, going to the roots, and it used to be that uh, in socialist circles, going to the roots gents meant looking at economic exploitation and we need to do that but we also have to look at the ecological roots we have to look at how the the exploitation of humanity and the alienation of labor is tied to the expropriation of the earth and the robbery of nature and um and how this is all systemic and this is a, a place that that people generally haven't uh gotten to but um the uh, seriousness of the crisis uh, may force it upon us. One thing, I, I, I wrote a book, The Vulnerable Planet, in 1994, and um, I was criticized at this time by people like even David Harvey for uh, saying that um, we were facing a global, a planetary ecological crisis. And, uh, and um, I realized that my analysis had been based on two things. One was paying attention to what the scientists were saying, but also coupling that with a knowledge of capitalism, which the scientists didn't really, the natural scientists didn't really have. And uh, when you put the two together, you could see just how vicious a spiral we were, we were in. Well, I am uh, sorry that you were correct. I wish you weren't correct in that prediction. We have been speaking with sociologist John Bellamy Foster, co-author with Brett Clark of The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism and the Ecological Rift. This spring, he's going to be uh, releasing a new book called Return to Nature. And John, I hope that you return to our show to talk about Return to Nature because I've really, really enjoyed our conversation this morning. We've got one last question for you, John, and what we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response did we choose capitalism and, and is it at least better than what preceded it well, i should say the book is the return of nature and yes capitalism i think was preferable to feudalism it was uh better than what preceded it and if you look at all the indicators like life expect expectancy and famines and and uh um and so on it was better than what preceded it in in many ways there are things that were lost though as william morris always tells us the um labor labor used to be mingled with art um and um that was destroyed and uh and you could see the alienation of labor, which was created by capitalism. So, uh, like uh, most things in in history, it was sort of a, you know, we have this spiral development. It's both an advance and a retrogression, right? Um, we're now um, looking at a kind of maybe a, a, a spiral development where we're 
Um, we really have a choice between ruin and revolution. And we have to pull uh, forward values, socialist values, egalitarian values, ecological values that have all been suppressed by the system. And these are just basically human values. We need a, a, a rise of humanity to cope with this problem. And a lot of the answers, the answers to the ecological problem are all are here. I mean, we, we know what to do. And a lot of um, our answers, in fact, lie in our past, which we have to retrieve in order to revolutionize the present. So I, I think we can do all of this, and I don't know if we will succeed, but I do know that hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people will in, be engaged in the struggle, and I know what side I'm on. We've been speaking with John Bellamy Foster. You can find out more about John at his own website, johnbellamyfoster.org. His new book coming out this spring is Return of Nature, and you can find out more about that at monthlyreview.org, where he is an editor. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show, sir. This is a fascinating book, and just so our listeners know, we didn't even skim the surface of this book. It's There's so much more to this book than what we just had in a 45-minute conversation, so please check out John's writing at monthlyreview.org check out his book, The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism, The Ecological Rift, and uh, look forward to his book, Return of Nature. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you very much. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash his check? Our favorite answer gets a book that we are featuring on tomorrow's show, Margaret Kimberly's Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or email it to us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, or tweet it at us at thisishellradio. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Oh uh, yeah. What are you? What nice thing are you saying about Michael Bloomberg after you cash that check? Alan G says these bootstraps fit rather nicely, and they really complement the rest of my wardrobe. <laughs> Corey N says, "How old is he, and what's his risk factor for deadly disease?" <laughs> and Corey, I said nice thing. <laughs> exactly. That check's not clear. And uh, Walter M says. <laughs> Walter M says you have a better haircut than Chuck's. He does. He does. Very nice haircut. Uh, Luke H says Mike Bloomberg's boots taste the best. Mm. Seamus R says I actually feel lighter and healthier after selling my kidneys. It's very liberating. <laughs> and finally, Mark A.S. says Bloomberg never flew to Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Island that we know of. Alex will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday live show? I've mentioned it a couple of times, Margaret Kimberly, but... Yeah, Sally. so you can't get sick because we don't want to cancel on her again. She'll start to suspect something. Mar I know. I Margaret know. Kimberly will be on the show to talk about her book, Prejudential. Black America and the Presidents. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if you have won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captive radio show host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex. I want to thank John Bellamy Foster. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>